0: Hello, and welcome to Joy of Politics. My name is Kevin White. I'm your host here, and I'm really happy to have you join us. Now, the first topic I'd like to talk about this episode, um, rather unfortunately, was the coup attempt that just happened here in in the United States just a couple days ago. And I don't have a whole lot to say that other people haven't. But I would like to reiterate that just because that this particular attempt didn't go anywhere, Doesn't mean that the next one or the next one after that won't. We have to take this kind of thing very, very seriously. And make no mistake, the people who stage this, they're going to say that they're for freedom and liberty, but they absolutely are not. Um, The people who stage this are fascists, and they are against the freedom of the vast majority of Americans. Now, I've heard a few pundits and politicians also try to draw some kind of moral comparison between this coup attempt and black lives matter between this coup attempt and the protests that happened this last year and that is absurd and it's outrageous um there can't be any moral equivalent between the people who are fighting for the freedom and people who are fighting against it any more than there can be an equivalence between me throwing a punch to steal someone's wallet and me throwing a punch to try to keep from being kidnapped And I would even go a little bit farther and say that this demonstration um, vindicated, not that it really needed any more vindication, but this demonstration vindicated a lot of what Black Lives Matter said about the police. We've seen that these police were willing to treat fascist um, people attempting a coup with kid gloves. We saw that a lot of them were perfectly willing to be complicit in a coup attempt. And that's also another thing we're going to have to take very, very seriously if we're going to maintain some semblance of a democracy in the future. The last thing I want to say about the attempted coup is that we also have to be able to make connections between these sorts of events and our actions and policies as a country. And I think one example of that is that for decades, much of our foreign policy has been kind of conducted by a threat of force with kind of an I get my way or I destroy you kind of attitude and mentality. And we also see that in a lot of our movies, a lot of media and so on. And I think we see here, part of what we see here, is the results of an internalization of that mentality. In order to have or maintain freedom in our politics and society, we must approach every aspect of public policy including things like foreign policy and economic policy, in ways that cultivate democracy and freedom. And that has to be meaningful. It can't just be an excuse. Like, we've often seen the United States claim to be spreading freedom when we invade or support or support coups in other countries, and that doesn't work. It has to be real. And it has to be not just the ends, but it has to be the means as well. So like Gandhi said that we can't separate the means and the ends any more than you can separate the seed and the tree that grows from the seed. So we have to be able to cultivate democracy and freedom in both in both our actions and in our objectives. Alright, next thing I'd like to talk about is a few ways we've seen over the last month or so that capitalism is antithetical to democracy and to freedom. A few days ago. It was reported that Biden's first pick to re- to be Treasury Secretary is Janet Yellen. And it was also reported that Janet Yellen has accrued something like $7 million in speaking fees over the last few years. As many others have said, this represents an unacceptable conflict of interest, which frankly should disqualify Janet Yellen from, from this nomination. Just like doctors are much more likely to prescribe medicines, from companies that give them money, it's much more difficult for politicians and regulators, public servants, to regulate companies that have employed them in the past or have given them money in the past even through speaking fees or might do so in the future. This is actually a very common form of corruption in modern American politics. It has been for a couple decades now. It is very common for politicians and and public servants to understand that after they leave public service, they could easily get a cushy job in one of the sectors, one of the businesses that they were previously regulating. And it's understood that they're much more likely to be able to do so if they're lenient toward that business. So this is very common in American politics, unfortunately. It is a form of legal corruption, and it's another way that money exerts its influence on politics, even aside from direct spending on on campaigns and direct donations. Another thing that I saw a few weeks ago is that Biden is creating an office of conservative outreach. Now, I I do want to start by saying that this, I think, is not a bad idea. I wish him luck in this endeavor, even though I think that he's probably overly optimistic in how successful this is going to be. But still, I, I think it's a good idea. I think it's worth a shot um the person he's nominating to the person that he's going to be hiring to do this is Cedric Richmond who was a um who was one of the higher ups in Joe Biden's uh, election campaign according to a bloomberg article a few weeks ago cedric richmond said that his job was not to only be outreach to conservatives but it was also going to be outreach to the private sector of the economy he said that he was going to act as a conduit straight into the white house For chief executive officers. He said, nobody's going to persuade me that somehow, some way that CEOs in this country are bad people. He added, business leaders are creating jobs and they deserve a seat at the table. Now, there are a few issues with this. One is that business leaders do not create jobs in a capitalist economy. Demand does. Jobs are created by demand for goods and services. Now, investment absolutely does matter, but that can come from a lot of different places. And that's not really the job of CEOs anyway. Business leaders will generally hire the fewest people that they can get away with. And if they have to hire more people, then that's because demand for their business is increasing. So no, business leaders do not really create jobs. That is done by increasing demand. Also, whether business people, whether CEOs are, quote, good people or bad people, unquote, is really completely beside the point of anything, especially public policy. I'm sure that most of them are nice to their families or nice to their friends. That would be perfectly pleasant to have dinner with. They probably pet dogs and give lots of money to charity, and none of that matters. Because what matters is what interests they're representing and what background they come from. Because that's what's going to dictate how they approach problems. So it doesn't matter whether they're good or bad people. It matters what interests they represent. It should also be worth mentioning that regular people, unlike these CEOs, will never have a conduit straight to the White House. That's just not something that's going to happen in the current system. And it's always been this way, right? It's just we're making it more explicit right now. Like, if Bill Gates or Elon Musk, if they want to talk with the president, they're going to find a way to be able to do that. If you or I want to do that, then we're just kind of out of luck. So this is another way that even ignoring campaign contributions, that we see money and moneyed interests exerting influence on our political system. Okay, main thing I wanted to talk about today is the COVID vaccines. Now, COVID vaccines are finally begin, beginning to roll out, thank God. I've heard through the news and whatnot that many people say that they will refuse or are refusing to get vaccinated, that they're declining these vaccines. Since these vaccines are not 100% effective, that means that a lot of people might get sick from COVID, even if they get vaccinated. As long as COVID is still going around, as long as there's a critical mass of people who can still spread it, even if people have been vaccinated, they can still get it. Now, it's easy to shame people who do this and possibly arguably even appropriate, although I would argue as to the effectiveness of doing that. And refusing to get vaccinated is absolutely harmful to society. But I think it's also worth asking and thinking about where such an impulse might come from. Now, there is an actual history of abuse in America in medicine and in medicine with regards to vaccines specifically, and I'm not sure that we can necessarily say for sure that there is a direct A to B connection between these abuses and people refusing to take vaccines now, but I think it might contribute, and it's worth thinking about. So a few examples. As part of the Manhattan Project, people were injected with radium without their consent or knowledge. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment, some of you might have heard of, had researchers claiming to be giving black men free health care as part of a government project while they were actually intentionally leaving them infected with untreated syphilis so that they could see how the disease would progress. The CIA has used polio vaccination programs most recently, as far as we know, in Pakistan as a cover for intelligence gathering. Um, This, for example, was done partly in an effort to gather intelligence on Osama bin Laden. And it's been a major setback to efforts to eradicate polio. Since, Since this program came to light, a lot of people are much less willing to accommodate people who are trying to run legitimate vaccination programs. And for the last few years, a lot of the world's new cases of polio have been in Pakistan. And this is to say nothing of both the countless accounts of doctors treating people of color in racist ways or of the government's apparent lack of concern for lives and well-being of people in general. Recall that Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean tap water. The resistance to taking a government-administered vaccine It's absolutely destructive, but I don't think we can act like it's completely irrational or completely unfounded in real-world events. Now, there's a concept in certain branches of economics called social capital. Basically, in traditional non-Marxist economics, capital is usually conceptualized as basically stuff that creates wealth. Traditionally, that's been thought of as raw materials, workers, and tools, most frequently just workers and tools. But eventually, some people pointed out that these aren't the only things involved in creating wealth. So they come up with some other terms to describe these things, natural capital and social capital. Natural capital is stuff like forests, ecosystems, genes, soil, the water cycle, and so forth. And social capital is stuff like culture, knowledge, friendships and families, and the trust between people. These concepts have important implications for, for example, how we think about wealth. Say, for example, that we took some intricate, still-working, expensive machine and we melted it down and made soda cans out of it. No one in their right mind would consider that an increase of wealth. Similarly, if we clear-cut a forest to produce hamburgers and toothpicks, that's also not an increase of wealth because the forest is producing all these other things like like oxygen, like um like rainwater and so forth. Even though in many traditional economic metrics, that does count as one. That so in GDP, for example, clear cutting a forest and making toothpicks and hamburgers out of it does count as an increase in GDP. Um, but it doesn't make any sense because it's the destruction of natural capital. It reduces our ability to produce wealth in the future. Along the same lines, acts that erode the trust between people and healthcare workers or people in the government are a destruction of social capital. And it's not just the events that I mentioned before. Just like capitalism has a tendency to destroy national capital for short-term gains, it has a similar tendency to destroy social capital for short-term gains. I think that our response to this pandemic has been a rather macabre demonstration of the dangerously poor state that our country's social capital is in. Not just in people's declination to take vaccines, but also in things like the rise of paranoid conspiracy theories, and in many people's refusal to do something as simple as wear a mask to keep others safe, or even just to make other people feel safe. I don't know what the solution to this state of affairs is. Frankly, I don't think that there is a short-term solution. In the long term, we have to work to build a culture of caring and trust, and we have to recognize that a lot of our problems are connected to this lack, to this um, deterioration of our social capital. We have to be able also to recognize how connected we are to each other. If we can't do that on a spiritual and emotional level, which I think we should be able to, we have to at least be able to do it on a pragmatic level. Health is a public issue. If a doctor treats someone racistly, that increases everyone else's chances of getting sick, including white people's. If people can't take time off when they're sick, that increases everyone else's chances of getting sick, even people who are lucky enough to have a jobs where you can take time off. If someone can't afford to see a doctor, that increases everyone else's chances of getting sick, including people who can. And the thing is, this shouldn't be a chore. There should be a joy in taking care of each other. There should be joy in building a system and a society that takes care of everyone. And I think that as we begin to experience that joy, it will also help us see the ways that we're connected with each other. So that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, Until next time, good night and joy be with you all.